I want to spend some time this morning looking at what really is a fairly appropriate summer message when you think about the storm story that we just had read to us. And to help you get into that, I'm going to take you back, and I probably have told you this about every other time I come here, but I grew up in Parker's Prairie, Minnesota, 884 people, little dinky town in Minnesota. Actually made it back for my high school reunion two weeks ago. Only two of those that I've attended. Wow, was that a blessing. I'm serious, it was. Guys, it really was. I mean, uh, if you want to ask me about that later, you can. But I was really grateful to be able to go back and uh, uh, see some friends that I had not seen for a long, long time. Now, growing up in this town, I simply didn't have access to the resources and some of the fun that my kids have today. And some of us would argue as parents, we might have a few too many resources and too many opportunities for fun as you try to balance your schedule with your kids. But life changed the summer I turned 13. Warner Knopp, boy, was he a character. Somewhere over in the air, he came in, had this strong accent, and he was a small engine repair guy. And he brought in a mini bike dealership. Woo! Now listen, I know, a mini bike probably dates me to some degree, some of you. A mini bike is simply, I guess the best way to describe it is a small motorcycle with no gears. It's just got a throttle. You hope it has a brake that works. No suspension. Loads of fun. Warner sold a couple dozen of these things. I desperately wanted one. Desperately. And I had this amazing plan. I figured I would take, because you remember back then the catalogs, right? We didn't order online. You had the catalogs. And I'd set the Sears and the JCPenney catalog out to the mini bike pages, just randomly set around the house, thinking that a moment of confrontation would instill inspiration within mom and dad, and they'd go out right away and get Tom one of those. You're laughing. You know it didn't work. So I remember watching my buddies ride these things. They would get groups of 10 and 15, and I'd see them head out of town at night, you know, around dusk, and I just yearned and yearned to be on a mini bike with them. I never got one. But I had something they didn't have. I had a skimmer. A skimmer. A skimmer is a racing boat. I had an older cousin who was pretty handy, very handy. And he took, remember, it, popular mechanics would come out and they'd put these, they'd put these uh, kits and the instructions in each issue and you could build these cool things. And it would be anything from furniture to a boat to a go-kart to a treehouse to something else a little more practical. And a skimmer was in one of these issues, and my cousin Edwin built it. Now, a skimmer is about eight to eight and a half feet long, maybe four, four and a half feet wide. It, the, it's only about this deep in the back of in the stern, and it just, it's plywood. It comes to a point. It's rounded. It looks like the racing boats that you see on the rivers and stuff, or maybe you see them drag race and stuff on TV, you know, wow, wow, they're just flat, 
I mean, this thing was mine. When Edwin was done, I took it, I refiberglassed it, I painted it up, and I had the whole front, this rounded, really skinny front, I had a deep blue, and I created all these white stars and red and white stripes going back. Woo, doggy, that was hot. Come on, I'm 13, I'm 14, I've got a 15 horsepower motor in there, and I am flying around. We lived on Lake Ida and then Lake Miltona. Both lakes were beautiful bodies of water. About seven miles long and two and a half miles across. That's a nice piece of water. And I could go anywhere. And I'd put a buddy in there. We'd pack a few sandwiches, wave to mom. Sometimes I wouldn't, and I'd be gone. It was wonderful. And I loved to show off with it. Gee, you think? One day I'm out, and a couple buddies of mine, the Gappa brothers, they were characters, still are. They still are. They're coming back from fishing, and they've got their little aluminum fishing boat and a five and a half, you know, coming back. And they'd just been out to the weed bed out here where we would just nail the bluegills, okay? And I know they're coming back with a stringer full of fish. I'm out there, and I see them coming, and I get inspired. I am going to do some laps around that little stinking boat of theirs. And I crank it up. And that's, you know, would just slide around the turns. I am in heaven. And I come around the boat one time, yeah, and I'm laughing there, going like, you're crazy. And I really wanted to let her go. And I came around that second time, and I hit the wake, and I got air. Now, I don't know if it was more than three or four inches, but I could hear the prop pop out of the water. And I came down the other side of the wake, and water went completely over the hole. And for a microsecond, I just, I can see it right now, guys. I was in sheer terror. I thought I was going to die. I thought it was over. This boat and me, it was about 45 feet. I thought we were just going to go boom and impale myself right in the bottom. Well, of course that didn't happen. I'm doing about 25 miles an hour, and the buoyancy of the boat just pulled me right back up. There's water all over. I'm soaked, and I and I pulled back in the shore. And my dad later said, "Tom, you were white, just white." I was terrified. A joy ride turns into a moment of stark confrontation. You know, moments like that can have a lot to do with how we see life. Reframing priorities, setting up a paradigm, and helping us to look at values and what life is really about. And this episode that we had read to us really represented that to these 12 men that Jesus had enlisted in his cause. Him. His cause was him. And so I'm going to submit to you today that There are two things that we can learn from this story. One of them will help us overcome a tendency that I know every one of us does occasionally that breaks down relationship. We're going to look at that. It's a way that the disciples interacted with Christ. And the second lesson here is a profound realization of just who Jesus is. You're to be 
thanked for coming today with everybody gone and coming in here in the summer. Your pastor's not here. And if you're here, I'm going to trust that you have an understanding and faith in Christ. But I believe that still looking at this story that some of you have heard not dozens, perhaps hundreds of times, I trust that the truth of these words will impart another unique and emphatic description and realization of who Jesus is in your life. What do we know about this body of water that they were on that day? Well, it was actually called three different things. It's called the Sea of Gennesaret, and it sounds like some people couldn't pronounce that, so some people call it Kenithereth, Sea of Kenithereth, and the Sea of Tiberias, who was a, a Roman ruler, and then the Sea of Galilee. And it was, as far as seas go, it really wasn't that large. 13 miles long, 8 miles across, 150 feet deep. Now, as a lake, that's a nice lake. As a sea, it's a pretty small sea. And the Jordan River would flow in from the north and down to the Dead Sea on the southern end. It was actually 685 feet below sea level. It's down there. To the north was snowy Mount Hernan. To the west, hills would move up to about 2,000 feet of elevation. Not a lot of vegetation on them. And so we know now, storms that happened at the time, we know now what was taking place. Cold wind would slide off the mountain and down those hills, hit warm air sitting over the lake, and it would create these quick storms. And people would get surprised, as they did, on this Sea of Galilee. Now, I was actually fairly shocked and going back and tweaking this message a few weeks ago to learn that there were actually nine towns or small cities located around the perimeter of its shore of ten to 15,000 people. Think about that. That's a lot of people. Nine towns of ten to 15,000 people around a body of water 13 by 8. Bustling fishing industry. It's not there today, but this was... Frankly, a very busy, active body of water. What had happened just prior to this? Well, Jesus had been teaching, and he'd been teaching parables. Parables have a hidden meaning. And some of you who are teachers know how difficult it can be to take extra time to reveal a lesson. That's what he had to do, because the parables had a, a nugget of truth in them. That's, that he... And, if you look at the scriptures, it's as though, yes, he seemed to hide some of the truth from the Pharisees and those that weren't really open-minded and hearted enough to hear him. And then he would reveal and explain this to his followers. And we have that famous sequence of parables, the parable of the sower, the lamp, the harvest, the mustard seed. And then we have this, well, Jesus is exhausted. He's tired. He's really really tired and he just simply needs to get away and he simply needs to get away so just very briefly again it's very short even he came he said to his disciples let's go over to the other side leaving the crowd behind they took him along just as he was in the boat there were also other boats with him we don't know what happened to them a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping. (laughs) 
think about it, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. And they asked each other, Who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him? Of these 12 men, we know four of them were fishermen. And at this time and on the Sea of Galilee, fishing at night was the way you did it. So of the 12, we know that four of them had been on a boat many times and had been out at night. I think it's a fair assumption to say that eight had never been on a boat. These boats are their livelihood. This is their link to providing for the family. That's it. You don't play with these things. These boats are about 16 to 18 feet long, perhaps six, six and a half feet wide, 13 people on a boat, that thing's packed. And so they're heading out. Well, what else can we, I think, safely assume? I see some of you around here who are families and join us at the swim club back in our neighborhood. You understand the value of swimming lessons, right? Do you think they had swimming lessons then? I don't. I don't believe... Anyone could swim. I think there might have been an enterprising fisherman here or there that could maybe tread a little water. I don't think there was... I think it's very likely that of these 12 disciples, none of them could swim a lick, if you will. Not a lick. So how did this begin? We're going to what? You want to... Jesus? Well, uh, if that's what he wants... Okay, and I'm sure there was some anxiety, some apprehension, but ah, it's Jesus' idea, and he looks like he needs a break. It's been a tough day or two. So they get in, and they take off. Now, I've done a lot of sailing. Some of you have, too. You know how when that wind just pops, you feel the wind poop, and then you feel that surge? There's nothing like that. And I think that surge... Whoa, now I don't think they're standing up. I think they're sitting down. Some of them are holding on to the sides very tightly. And they're experiencing something because it's Jesus' idea. He, He needs to go to the other side. Now the wind freshens and picks up a bit. And I think a couple of them began to get, uh, let's say, a little more anxious, a little more apprehensive. And then white caps form. And living on lakes so many years of my life, when I saw whitecaps, we'd put the water skis down and get the sailboat out. And this is a little troubling to them, especially, remember, they don't swim. They haven't been in a boat. I think this is totally new territory. And now it's getting really rough. And waves are slopping over the side. It says that it nearly became swamped. Listen, I've been in a few boats. When waves start coming over the side, 
I can swim. We've had good boats. I wasn't on a body of water this big. It still is scary, isn't it? It is. These guys think they're going to die. They believe they're going to die. They can't understand how Jesus... Now, I don't mean to be irreverent. I'm just trying to let you... He's truly sleeping. Do you think, this, do you think he's setting them up? Do you think he's setting them up? Yeah, I'm going to just take a little nap here and see what these 12 guys do. No, I get no indication of that. Do you? Nothing like that. He is, this is amazing, and this is hard for us to understand, and some of you may still be grappling with this. He's fully man and fully God in one body. And he is exhausted. I've done a lot of teaching. I've taught high school, middle school, elementary. The high school is a longer day, I'll tell you that. You know what's really more exhausting? elementary because you are on every minute of the day you can't just oh you got 45 minutes go ahead and do that and at the end of teaching at elementary level i'm tired and i'm told by my wife i have the gift of napping i'm proud of that because jesus did it too you know, he did. He's a power napper. Look, I have actually set my watch at times for nine and ten minutes if I just need to reboot. Anyone else in here? You know, I believe in a nap. And what do you know? Jesus needed a nap. That's it. They can't fathom that he's really that tired, that the boat would be rocking, water coming in, and he could actually still be asleep. How does that happen? How does that happen? He must not care. He, he, there's no way. There's no way he could be at ease. There's no way he could be at peace. There's no way he could really be sleeping when I'm about to die? They expected him to solve this, didn't they? They did. They expected a solution. So what do you think they thought he was going to do? Matthew, James, oh, oh, thanks for waking me up, boys. Uh, Get on the other side. Let's balance this thing out. You know, what did they think he was going to do? They woke him up to solve it. What did they think he was going to do? There's a point over there. I'm sorry I nodded off. Yeah, go around that. It's a little, little quieter. You guys okay? I'm going to go back to sleep. You know, these robes, honestly, they're kind of a drag, but it's what we're all wearing now. Let's bail. Come on, guys. What did they think he was going to do? Solve it, Jesus. What did they think he was going to do? James Lower the mainsail. Come on, back that off a little bit. Are you crazy? Let's go. Drop. Yeah, there you go. Okay, okay. Peter, move over. Give me the rudder. Captain Jesus. They thought he was going to do something like that. They believed he was going to solve it. Not the way he did. 
interesting. They asked him to fix it. They didn't foresee the way he did. What could they have said? Because I think their fear, I think their terror is justified. Absolutely. But when you insert a motive and say to Jesus, don't you care? Listen, Scott could do a six-week series in here on, on theological truth of how Jesus cares for you and I more than anybody on the planet. Anyone. I can't say he doesn't care. I may misunderstand. I may not see. They didn't. That was the error. They expected a solution. He provided one they couldn't see. And they impute motive because they can't believe. How in the world is he not meeting my expectation? He must not care. They could have said, please wake up. None of us, well, those two can, but we can't swim. This is not good. Rabbi, please, please. They could have said a lot of things like, I'm freaked out, I'm scared, I think I'm going to die. But when you say, don't you care? They're imputing a false motive into the Son of God. They shouldn't have done that. I'll spend some time on that in closing. So Jesus stands up. And it's very interesting because he doesn't turn and respond to them, does he? He doesn't. He stands up and he speaks to what? The wind and the waves. Because they can hear him? No. You know, in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians 1.17b, it says that Jesus holds creation together. He holds it together. What he's doing is simply expressing the reality of who he is, fully God, in this body. He holds, yes, I know, some of you are going, really? Yes, he holds the cosmos together with his sheer will. He created it, he holds it together. And now he's controlling it. So he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves, and immediately, Now, I am trying my best to do what I think is an accurate description of an event that some of us have heard many, many times. And it may be hard for us to insert ourselves into that reality, but this was a moment of sheer terror. They thought they were going to die, and suddenly, I will never forget. It was about, I think it was a year maybe two years ago. Am I okay there, Phil? That's, my tape is still hanging in there. I was preaching this message. I drove up, I get up to Milwaukee and preach fairly regularly, and anyway, I'm up there, and it's, it was a little cloudier than this. There's no wind. It was what you call a sodden, overcast day. And there's mist, no wind. That's it. A big, wet, soggy day. And I'm working through this passage, working through this message, and I get to this point 
where it says, he rebuked the wind, he rebuked the waves, and it's calm, just like that. And right then, a clap of thunder. It had not thundered all morning. We hadn't seen any lightning. It had not thundered. I could not have asked for better special effects if I'd been on my knees fasting for a month. That's what happened. Boom! It's calm. Now, look at what happens. Because it says he, he, he rebukes them. Have you no faith? Why are you so afraid? And then it says in 41, they were terrified. Now, if I am going to list emotional states, I could start with concern, frustration, anxiety, apprehension, fear, terror, horror. It sounds to me like they were more afraid when they're safe. You see that? They're more afraid when they're safe. What's that about? How do you go from a moment of sheer terror when you think your life is going to end to standing there in complete serenity and calm and now you're terrified? Don't miss that. That is so key, obviously, here. That happens because suddenly you go, He's quite a teacher, but that's the least of really what he is. They really are coming to this paradigm and trying to understand that he could actually be God. Now look at this. Jesus expected them to understand fully. If you look at the Gospel of Mark, there are only three chapters leading up to this. And if you look at the interaction, I asked some of you to read this in the next week. Look at what happened in the prior time. He's interacting and confronting the Pharisees, doing some healing. He believed and he expected them from, and again, there's not a lot there in those three chapters, but he expected them to know who he was at this time. And then the very next episode, they get out of the boat and they confront a man called Legion. Legion knows who they are. He knows, excuse me, who Jesus is. Do you see what, what God asked Mark to do? Set this up and show, my son is God. Even the demons know, I designed this situation so these 12 men would come to that terrifying reality of who he is so that you would know. That you would know. Whoa. God is in my boat. Now most of the time when we're terrified, we flee. They don't, do they? Interesting. They're terrified, but they don't get out of the boat and go. They're terrified, and they stay. And they stay. How do we apply this? Well, there are two things. And I told you one of them was looking at, I think, one of the most painful 
relational breakdown situations I've experienced and have seen in people around me. We impute false motive from actions. Because that's what they did here. The whole humanity of Christ, he's simply exhausted, tired. They can't believe he could be sleeping through this. He was. And they go, he must not care. He was simply asleep. And I know I've done this, and I've talked to people, we have done this. They didn't greet me with the energy I thought. When I came in, there just wasn't quite the eye contact I expected. That handshake wasn't quite there. Maybe the embrace wasn't quite what we thought. Maybe their inquiry wasn't. They didn't call me back soon enough. We do that. We impute false motive regularly, don't we? And when I impute false motive and I talk to people that do, it's always the worst motive. I hear some chuckles. Okay, you're tracking Golly, gee whiz, we can't do that. You know how we avoid that? Oh, this takes guts. This takes courage. It takes integrity. You ask. You say, you know, I'm sensing uh, a little tension. Here's what I saw. Here's what happened. Are we good? Are we good? Now, I'm going to admit that that is a high-risk, scary thing to do. I've done that a number of times. Every time, it solidifies my relationship because you're coming to them with brutal clarity and honesty and asking, how can I better serve and love you? Is there something here that I'm not aware of? Are we, is there something that I, That's what I am asking. Could you ask that? You do, I will, t- I will guarantee you, you will strengthen relationships in your life. Number two, this is here so that you would see and know and understand that Jesus is God. This story has the same veracity, the same reality as the virgin birth Christmas story we celebrate every December. This happened. Twelve men were there. It's been recorded. This happened. And guess what? He didn't alter a meteorological incident to show off. He did it to convince them he loved them. And he could look into their storm of their life and calm it if they'd let him. That they might ask, Lord, hold my world together. That's why. This is, it blows me away to think what he did then, and that's nothing to changing my heart and yours, to move me away from sin, to move me towards righteousness, to change and direct my life in a way that reflects him, and many times I don't even know it. There's nothing like that, right? There's nothing like This is awesome. Wish I had a skimmer on the Sea of Galilee. But I've got a relationship with him. Because I know he's the son of God and I've seen him calm storms in my life. Can you say that?
I hope you can. I know that a church that supports the youth group and supports Scott the way you have, you've been here for years, I know what your heartbeat is. And that I pray that this story that you've heard many times would bring on a new reality. Some of you need to renew your commitment and understanding. Some of you need to say, praise God, I have been on board. I don't know where you are, but I can assure you of this. He will welcome any leaning in that you give to him. Because he loves you. He loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this storm long ago and your calming of it then to tell us of your capabilities here for us now. Please help us to see when we impute false motive and to move into that for clarity, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And help us again to recognize, yes, you are the author of life and you direct the cosmos and you cherish each and every one of us. Amen.